Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I should have asked his last name, how he pronounces it, but here I go. So I'm here with Nils Pilot. I hope that's right. Or Pilot. How do you pronounce it, Nils? Pilot. Close enough. Pilot. Oh, okay, third time. <laughs> uh, he's, a, he's a postdoctoral researcher at uh, Williams's lab at Smith College. And we're going to talk about his uh, research into uh, tropical parasitic diseases. So, Nils, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, tell me about um, what got you into, well, what started your interest in tropical diseases and then... I want to ask you about your current research. Okay. My interest really stemmed from, so when I was an undergraduate, um, I worked in a a lab doing, you know, what is generally just referred to as basic research, sort of science for the sake of understanding science. Um, And we worked with, with tadpoles. And specifically, we did a lot of work on tadpole metamorphosis and sort of trying to figure out how the different you know, the, the different signals within a tadpole would lead to the metamorphosis, the, the metamorphosis process. And I found it very interesting, but I also found myself, you know, in the lab in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. sort of killing tadpoles in order to, to do this research. And it really um, sort of hit me that for, for my personal interests to be fulfilled, I thought I needed something with a more direct human application. Um, and so I started looking, you know, as I finished my undergraduate work and started looking towards towards graduate work, um, I really started looking for fields that had tangible, direct human applications. And I, you know, couldn't find much that was more appropriate for for that kind of work than than neglected disease and human tropical disease. So, so that's sort of what led uh, me to get started. Well, there's probably a whole bunch of them. What what disease or diseases are you focused on? Um, so we work in, in the lab that I work in, we focus primarily on, so wormy parasites, so all kinds of the different wormy diseases that you think of when you think of the really gross, you know, parasitic infections. We work on both the soil transmitted helminths, which are uh, a series of um, parasites that infect the, the intestines and the guts, basically, and sort of really what they do is they just steal nutrition, so they colonize your gut. And then as you're eating, they're, they're stealing nutrition, you know, generally from the blood as, as you're nourished, they're nourished as well. And then in addition to the soil transmitted helmets, we do a lot of work with what are known as the filarial pathogens. And these are the one that everyone is familiar with um, here in the States, even though it's, it's not a human infecting one, is, is heartworm. So dog heartworm, cat heartworm, that's a filarial pathogen. And really what that means or what makes a pathogen a filarial pathogen is that it's transmitted by an insect vector. So a mosquito in this case will take a blood meal from an infected animal and that mosquito will then transmit the infection to another animal when it feeds a second time. And so there are a lot of parasites that infect humans that work basically the exact same way. They're, They're close relatives of heartworm um, and so we study those as well. The, the one that some people have heard of, even though they probably might not be aware that they've, 
that they're familiar with it is one that causes a, a presentation or a disease called elephantiasis. So you may have seen pictures uh, uh, with you know, the big swollen, uh, not exactly, but similar. So you see the pictures with like the big swollen limbs, you know, arms or legs generally, and and that's caused by one of these little mosquito transmitted worms. Believe it or not. really. Well, I mean, that's unusual. Maybe we could start with that, if you don't mind. Sure. Just just talking Hello. a little bit more about that disease. Well, it's a bad joke, but maybe we should address the elephantitis in the room. So, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, yeah, let's, let's I, <laughs> I love dad jokes. That was spot on. I appreciate that. So, yeah. So, that disease is actually called lymphatic filariasis. And the presentation that it causes is, that it causes is elephantiasis, or one of the presentations, the most commonly seen one is elephantiasis. And basically what happens is the mosquitoes will, when they take a blood meal from a person who's infected, the infected person will have the tiny little babies swimming around in their bloodstream. And so then when the mosquito feeds, it takes up these little baby parasites with the blood. And then inside the mosquito, and this is essentially the same way that heartworm works, actually. Inside the mosquito, the parasite will further develop into a stage that can then reinfect the next individual who's bitten by the mosquito. So when the mosquito takes a second blood meal, the infectious stage now will migrate out of the mosquito, get back into the human. Um, and then in the human, they'll actually mate. So the males and the females will mate. They'll set up residence basically in the lymphatic system. So in the little vessels that trans, you know, transport fluids back to your blood from your tissues. Um, and there they'll have babies and the babies will get into the bloodstream and the cycle will go on and on and on. And the reason that you get these present, this disease presentation of the swollen limbs is because the, the adults will block the vessels. So just their presence there will cause the vessels to block. And that leads to the accumulation of the fluid in the tissues. And that causes the sort of the, the presentation of the swelling and the, the really distended limbs. So the lymph accumulates and doesn't, uh, I guess, circulate, and then that distends the limb or the part that's affected? Exactly. So it's, it's not too dissimilar. So, you know, you may have seen, you know, someone who's very sedentary or maybe someone who's very heavy who will have swelling of the ankles or swelling of the lower extremities. And really that's a similar situation where the fluid is just having trouble getting back out of the tissue back into the bloodstream. And so this is just sort of an, a, a situation that mimics that where because the vessels are blocked, the fluid has trouble getting back into the bloodstream and it causes that, that distension of the limb and, and the, the swelling that you see. Well, then, isn't the actual lymph that's distended, the lymph system, or is it, uh, does it leak into the interstitium and then the interstitium is what distends? So initially what happens is the, the blockage will prevent the fluid from getting back into the blood vessels from the lymph vessels. But over time, because the, accum the accumulated fluid will build up in the connective, uh, in the surrounding tissues, in, in the interstices, like you mentioned, it will actually, lymph is a very nutritious substance. So it'll just lead to the formation, basically, of connective tissue over time. And so you get this irreversible connective tissue growth that occurs. Um, and so it, over time, it becomes a very fibrous, sort of irreversible condition. But initially, it starts when people are first affected. It'll be transient, so they'll have swelling. It'll go away. It'll come back. It'll go away, and then over time, it progresses to a, a more permanent, more permanent condition. Well, where does the connective tissue form? Is it just 
does it become fibrous like when you have scarring like in a heart attack exactly it's it's essentially scar tissue yep it's just the very fibrous tissue that will grow within the location of the distension because of the accumulation of the fluid and because of the damage to the tissues that's occurring as a result of that accumulation and as a result of the breakdown from all of the damage that that's happening in the location well what's like the morphology of it does it tend to grow like on the edges like it's lining a sac or does it just grow everywhere, the connective tissue, and it slowly, like, in a way, ossifies or just hardens up? So, yeah, it doesn't ossify, really. There's no... Well, wrong word, but it, it, I guess it becomes restricted and, you know, tough and fibrous. Yeah, it, exactly. It becomes a tough, fibrous tissue, really like a, you know, a probably a collagen, collagenous-type tissue that sort of just builds up and forms... And, and really, the biggest problems associated with it are secondary infections. In addition to it being, you know, a, a heavy and dense and, and cumbersome tissue, um, it also leads to distension of, you know, the skin and, and the surrounding tissues and can cause uh, serious problems with secondary infections. So, you know, and, and as you can imagine, in a lot of the places where this is most common, hygiene is sometimes a bit more difficult in terms of sanitation being you know, maybe not up to the levels that we're typically used to thinking about it at. And as a result of this, secondary infection has a much easier time taking hold and, and can lead to some, some serious complications. So um, interesting. Have, have you uh, been able to see any biopsies of the lymph or the tissue at various stages in an infection like this? And if so, what, what is observed? Um, so actually, no. So our work is typically more on the front end where, you know, heavily involved in the diagnosis aspect of things. So at times see patients who present with these conditions, but in terms of actual biopsies, um, I've basically been limited to seeing the photographs and the images and, and so on and so forth, probably that are, you know, available to, to people who study these things. Um, I've never been in, in the room doing the work downstream like that. Our work is mostly on the front end. So out of the, uh, you know, I guess going to another parasite, which is the one that you've uh, studied the most in detail and that you're most fascinated by? Um, so I would say probably the ones that we were just talking about. So the filarial parasites, those group of, of parasites that are transmitted by an insect vector, those are the ones I've studied probably for the longest. Basically my entire, you know, roughly 15 years in the field, I've worked in one capacity or another with those parasites. Um, I would say my work with the soil transmitted helminths is probably over the past maybe seven or eight years. We sort of branched out into that a little bit further down the road or, or down the line. And I, I find the filarial parasites fascinating, uh, I think mostly because of how sort of evolutionarily adapted they are to their specific niches. So their ability to really thrive in two entirely different host systems, you know, an, a mammalian host like a human, um, and then an insect host, which is, you know, a very, as you can imagine, different organism. And, and the need that has developed to these parasites to be able to, you know, to, to really thrive in both of these for different uh, portions of their life cycle, to me is just fascinating and, and really makes them some of, you know, some of the most interesting organisms, their, their co-adaption and their evolutionary um, adaption to their hosts, I find, I find really fascinating. Well, let's talk about heartworm then. You said that's a, a filarial parasite. So first of all, what does a filarial parasite look like? Is it single cell, multi-cell? What is it? 
No, so they're all multicellular. They're eukaryotic uh, multicellular organisms. And seeing them, when you look at them the way I typically would describe them to people, so the, the babies are uh, either impossible to see or in some instances, you know, you could maybe make them out if you use your imagination a little bit um, with the naked eye, but they're very, very tiny, the, the most larval stages. But then the adults are, are typically um, not difficult to see. They do vary in size, some being as much as, you know, a few millimeters long or even a little bit longer than that, and others, you know, being, uh, excuse me, a few centimeters long and others being just a millimeter or two long, depending on the species. Um, but they, they, I typically describe them to people as almost looking like fishing line. So they're, they're thin and sort of translucent looking when you look at them with, with the naked eye. You know, typically they'll, if you see them, they'll just be kind of wiggling around, squirming around. And, you know, they, they just have that appearance of sort of a, a tiny little, almost a, a translucent piece of string, but very tiny, almost like dental floss. And when they're, uh, do, they, do they sexually proliferate or do they just... Uh... I mean, do they actually proliferate inside of a person? I'm mean, sorry, inside of a, a dog or a cat? No, they, they sexually proliferate. So all filarial parasites are, you know, they have a male and a female sex and, and they have to mate within, within the mammalian host in order to reproduce. And so this can happen in different locations. It's within the lymphatics. If we're talking about those worms that cause lymphatic filariasis, it's it's within the circulatory system within the bloodstream. If we're talking about heartworm, um, and so depending on the organism and the species, it can be in different locations within the host organism. But there is a mating that occurs, and then a production of the most juvenile stage of the worm, which will then circulate either within the bloodstream or you know underneath. In some instances, they'll migrate underneath the skin. And this is how they become available to the next host insect that comes to take to take a meal, um, so that they can be taken up by that host and passed on to another individual. So, what happens in heartworm that causes problems? And uh, then I want to ask you about males versus females behavior, etc. So, in heartworm, the the problem really stems from just occlusion of vessels, and in particular, the the heart itself. So the heart chambers, in, in heavy infections, the heart chambers will fill um, with, essentially with the worms, with the adult worms. And when that happens, as you can imagine, it, it impedes the ability of the heart to pump, to function as a pump. And similar to what happens in like a heart failure situation in humans, um, when that occurs and the heart fills with these worms, the pumping ability is, is compromised. And over time, it will cause basically heart failure within the animal, um, if not treated. So it, where, where does it preferentially happen on the oxygenated side or the deoxygenated side? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Oh, you're asking difficult questions now for, uh, for the diagnostic guy. Oh, yeah. As far as I'm aware, it's actually not confined to one, you know, to right or left chambers of the heart. So the most problematic location is in the aortic portion. So that would be, you know, coming out of the heart towards the, the systemic circulation. But whether it's entirely confined to that portion or not, I, I don't believe so. It can, it can in, impact basically all of the chambers of the heart. So what happens, uh, you know, to a dog or a cat in early stages versus later? What do they experience? So early stages, I mean, in many cases, early stage infections are very light infections, more or less go unnoticed where, you know, you might not even be aware that your animal is infected. And in some instances, 
you can have an infected animal for years where if it's, you know, sometimes you'll get a single sex infection where they were lightly infected and only develop, you know, one or two adult worms of a single sex and then there's no reproduction and there's no proliferation to other animals or anything like that. And in many cases where it's a, a minor infection like that, you might not have too many noticeable signs. I mean, the, the things they talk about are things like lethargy, you know, lethargy, lethargy, where the animal is just basically not acting the way you would expect it to. It might seem tired all the time. It might not want to move around as much as it, it normally does. And that sort of just progresses with worsening infection, you know, where you'll, you'll notice those changes. But then there are instances where heavily, heavily infected animals really act almost normal. And there's, you know, a, a no or very little presentation of disease outwardly that the animal displays. So, so it can be tricky. It can be tricky to, you know, to know how, how severe infection is. And that's, that's actually one of the reasons why we are so interested in the diagnostic aspects of these diseases, because in many cases with a lot of these diseases, infection is difficult to recognize just based on outward symptoms but it's still there and there's still the potential for transmission to other people or other animals. Um, and so it's important to, to identify these, these infections, even if they're not causing disease in some instances or not too significant of disease. How is it detected? Is it a blood test? Do these, you know, worms put out like extracellular vesicles that go into the blood that you can pick up? So, so actually, um, funny that you say that. So one of the new so there are, there are a lot of different tests available. I guess I should start there. So with heartworm, the current standard in, you know, the veterinary community typically is um, testing for uh, antigen of, of the adult worm. So when you have an adult infection, typically the, what's believed to be the adult female, so it's proprietary, so they don't talk a lot about it, but the adult females produce an antigen that's shed into the bloodstream and you can do basically a rapid blood test to identify the presence of this, this protein from the adult female worm. And that'll tell you that infection is present. The problem is, and one of the reasons that we, you know, work a bit in heartworm is that you're not going to find appreciable levels of this protein unless the adult females are present. So if you want to really try and identify infection before the adults mature or before there's su sufficient numbers of adults for enough of this material to be present, you know, you need to find a, a different way of, of identifying the disease. And so most of the work that we do, whether we're talking about soil transmitted helminths or with, uh, filarial pathogens like heartworm, is based on DNA-based diagnostics. So we look for the presence of DNA sequences that are unique to a specific organism, but are present in very large numbers within the genome of that organism. So really what we like to do is we like to look at, you know, the blueprint for an organism and identify the little pieces of that blueprint that are repeated over and over again, but are also unique to that one organism and won't be found in other closely related organisms. And by doing this, we can design tests that are both sensitive because of the large number of times this shows up within an organism's genome and specific because they're only found within that one organism. So you're looking for a 16S version to, you know, an easy test to figure out if the heartworm is there, not like a shotgun, more expensive sequencing. So really what we do, so 16S, um, it's funny that you mentioned that. So 16S, obviously ribosomal sequence, 
ribosomal sequences for eukaryotic organisms are really sort of the, the historical, you know, go-to for uh, anything eukaryotic in terms of a diagnostic test using DNA. And really, we like to think of that as, or the reason for that as being the availability of those sequences. So obviously, you know, when, when DNA-based science was sort of getting its start and people were really getting into sequencing, people in general have this tendency to want to categorize, right? And so it was a matter of sequencing these different organisms and trying to find something that they could use that would be close enough to make comparisons, but different enough to distinguish. So you could find this, like you said, a 16S sequence, something that's found across different organisms that are vastly different from each other, you know, a ribosomal sequence, and you can find these sequences and you can identify them as that ribosomal sequence, but you can still make distinguish, you can find distinguishing features between them so that you can start to develop relationships between organisms. So you can say, this is very much like this, and it's kind of like this, but it's very different from this. And so that's historically been, you know, a go-to for DNA diagnostics because those sequences are out there, they're available, and they're easy to find. What we've found, though, through our work is that they do come with some, you know, there are certain aspects of them that make them possibly suboptimal for diagnostic purposes. And one of those is that similarity. So many times you can tell what an organism is using this 16S sequence, but maybe not to the species level. Maybe closely related species share their sequence. And so there's no way to distinguish between the two using uh, a DNA diagnostic that targets this particular sequence. And so what we like to do... Well, go yeah, ahead. I, no, sure. No, I was going to say, why don't you, you know, a, a poor animal that's passed away pull out the, the heart, take a bunch of worms, sequence them fully. You know, what? I don't know what you'll find, but um, you said some infections don't seem to go anywhere. I wonder if it's like a, you know, a colony of bees and you have workers, drones, queen, et cetera. They're all the same, similar phenotype, but they're all bee. They're all work together. I wonder if for a successful infection, not only do you need male and female, but maybe you need variants of the, uh, you know, of the heartworm, for instance. And then it's a more successful infection. Maybe if there's not a, a large enough population that's able to mate and have full functionality, then that's why the infections don't take hold. And you might see that if you sequence. And then if you, you know, if someone deliberately infects, unfortunately, a dog or a cat with only males, only females, both at a low level, high level, um, you might be able to tease that out and figure out what's going on. Yeah. I mean, that's a very interesting idea. I'm sure that there is you know, signaling that occurs between the organisms in an infection that's, you know, within an established infection. Um, you know, you see that across across the, the pathogen world, basically, right, where there's signaling that occurs between pathogens uh, within an infected organism. And then there's also lots of time signaling that occurs between pathogen and host within an infected organism. And in reality, probably one of the most important, and again, this is a bit outside, you know, the, the range of my expertise as, as a diagnostic-based individual, but the reality is that a huge, again, going back to that idea of co-evolution and, and the development of these, these pathogens within their, their hosts over many, many, many years, there's crosstalk between the host and the organism that leads to a lot of the either presentation of disease or, or lack thereof. So, 
they know, for instance, that many of these parasites have developed very clever ways to disguise themselves so that the immune system won't recognize them. And then in other instances, the parasites will be readily recognized by the immune system. And this will lead to, you know, very active immune responses that can lead to a lot of the presentation of disease. So this co-evolution and this talking, this sort of crosstalk between host and parasite is sort of on the forefront of our, our field. And there's tons and tons of research that's being done in that, that area. I think both for from the standpoint of trying to better understand the relationships that are leading to disease presentation, but also just to better understand really that, that nature of pathogenicity and how pathogens have um, really adapted to sort of cleverly, you know, create their niche within their host organisms. Yeah. And I would think that the host gets in, you know, has epigenetic marks and changes, but also the parasite too, as it's in the host. Oh, absolutely. So I'm sure that there is, you know, and I, I'm sure it's, it's, it's almost like an arms race is how we think of it. Right. So, and, and this is not just unique to these, these parasites, but again, across the pathogen world where, you know, the, the, the parasite or the pathogen is adapting um, to better survive and better thrive within its host organism. And then as a response to that, the host organism has to adapt to better fight off this pathogen. Um, and in reality, though, you know, what we, we also like to, and to, to talk about and to think about and, and something that these worms have become very good at over evolutionary time is if you think about it, right, a successful pathogen in a successful parasite is one that doesn't cause devastating disease in its host, right? Because if you cause really bad disease in your host, your host is ultimately going to die. And once your host is dead, you're not spreading disease anymore, right? So a good pathogen has found a way to sort of coexist with its host, where the host is able to continue to go about its business and continue to spread disease, um, providing the pathogen with you know, with an environment to, to survive, basically, and to propagate. Well, just in terms of diagnosis, again, another thing to look at is um, pre-infection. What are the sequences of the infecting worms? And what are their epigenetic marks? And then post-infection, I would think they would be marked up in a very different way. How does that change over time once, you know, you have an infection? And then, um, again, if, if another mosquito bites a dog that has heartworm, let's say, and it gets the heartworm back, what does it look like now in that new mosquito versus before it passes through a dog, you know, what does the sequence of the, of the, of the parasites look like? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It could be definitely different. I mean, so we do some work with um, RNA diagnostics as well, where, you know, we'll try to determine stages of pathogen based just on genetic material where we'll, you know, we'll look for uh, genes that have been expressed. And so we'll look for the, the messenger RNA transcripts that are being produced only by certain stages of a pathogen. And so we know that if we find certain uh, messenger RNA markers, basically, we know that they came from a certain stage. And so we know, you know what sort of infection or what sort of uh, stage of the organism is present in that, that, that host or that, that vector. And really where we use approaches like that most frequently is when we look at the vector host. So when we look at mosquitoes that are transmitting the infection because there's only a single stage of these parasites that's capable of reinfecting a second host. So it's not sufficient for a mosquito to take up a blood meal 
that contains the parasite. The parasite then has to progress through life cycle stages within the mosquito to become reinfectious to another person. And so by looking at mosquitoes and looking for the presence of these specific life stages, we can tell whether that mosquito is capable, even if it has the parasite in it, whether it's capable of transmitting that parasite to someone else or not. Wait, how big do these worms get? Because if a mosquito feeds on you know, a dog that's infected, it's not taking the big ones. Right. It would so, only take, I guess, the babies, right? Exactly. So that's a that's an excellent point. So the babies are shed after the obviously after the the differentiated, sexually differentiated adults mate. They'll shed the, the female will shed the babies. Generally, if we're thinking about heartworm or you know the, the causative agents of lymphatic filariasis, they'll shed these little baby pathogens into the bloodstream. And so there can be thousands of tiny, tiny babies within a single milliliter of blood. And so if you were to look at them under a microscope, you'd see them as, you know, these tiny little babies sort of intermixed with the little red blood cells. And so they're just scattered throughout the circulation in the blood. And when that mosquito field feeds and takes up its, its little blood meal, it'll take up these pathogens with it. So it's only the juvenile stage that's being taken up by the mosquito but then that juvenile has to become more mature within the mosquito before it is ready to be transmitted back to a second host. So what do the drugs or therapies look like for heartworm that work? So really they're, they're just a series of uh, very, they're very inexpensive. There's a small series of them, things like ivermectin, albendazole, diethylcarbamazine. These are, these are the names that are, you know, the sort of the generic names that you would find underlying any heartworm medicine that you you found for your dog. Um, and really they're, what they do is, so there's still a lot of unknowns actually in terms of how they work in terms of their ability to, to kill the parasites, many of them. So when we think about the human infections with lymphatic filariasis, for example, really the aim in most instances is not to clear infection, but unfortunately just to stop transmission. And so because these are diseases of, you know, of basically of poverty, they're found in locations where the standard of living is not, not as high as we would, we would like it to be. Typically, the approach to treatment for these diseases isn't a test and treat approach like we would have, you know, here in America where you would go to the doctor and they would figure out what's wrong with you and then they'd treat you for that disease. In many of these locations, really what's happening is what's called mass drug administration. And the idea is that if you treat uh, a certain segment of the population, or in some instances, the entire population, either once a year or twice a year, or maybe three times a year, depending on both the disease and the treatment, you can prevent that treatment from being spread to other people. And the thought is that if you take a vector transmitted disease, right, a mosquito that can't find an infected host because you've interrupted transmission when it bites someone, it's not going to have parasite to pass on to someone else. And so, so really what many of these drugs do is they just target the babies. So I, I was just gonna say, so basically what's happening is we're clearing the bloodstream of the babies using these drugs. And if we do that, if we treat two times a year or a single time a year, depending on the drug and the disease, we can eliminate the presence of those babies from the circulation. And then when that mosquito feeds, there's nothing there for it to transmit. And by doing that, you can interrupt the cycle of transmission. But what about the, uh, you know, person or the creature that's infected? Um, do these worms have a lifespan 
So do they die off and new ones take their place or you can have the same ones there for years? So they will last years, but they will die off and they won't reinfect. So you can't become reinfected. The, the babies that are produced by two adults mating within your body will not mature to become adults within your own body. So they have to produce babies that then have to be transmitted to the mosquito to go through the life cycle. So if you can prevent transmission, you can prevent someone who's infected from being exposed again and again. And in that way, over time, you know, they will also see a reduction in their infection levels because the adults that are present will begin to die off. And if they're not being reinfected, they'll eventually eliminate the infection within their own body. And what do they feed on the worms? Do they feed on the heart tissue itself or they feed on the blood? No, they're, they're so they're part of the blood. Yeah, they're basically filter feeders and they're just they're basically just absorbing absorbing nutrition from the bloodstream. So the dissolved, you know, the dissolved components of the blood um, are being are being used as as food by these these pathogens. Well, what do they eat specifically? Because I would think then you would end up with blood that's lopsided in terms of the concentration of various components. Like let's say they eat platelets, you know, or let's say they eat, I don't know, red blood cells. Like what do they specifically eat? And what does that tell you? So, so I mean, really, when we're talking about appreciable amounts of feeding, we're thinking of the adults. And typically with filarial pathogens, you wouldn't have sufficient infection burden where you would really notice any sort of, you know, resulting pathology within the host from the filtering that's occurring. Where that does occur is with the soil transmitted helmets, where they're they're colonizing your gut. They're basically living in your, generally in your small intestine, although it can be in different sections of your intestines. And they're siphoning blood, essentially, um, by latching onto the walls of your intestines and, and feeding that way. And they do cause uh, problems, particularly with anemia, because of their ability to siphon, siphon blood from the circulation. The ones that cause anemia, are they, when you say they siphon blood, are they siphoning whole blood or again parts of the blood no they're they're just taking blood meals basically yep they're just they're they're little tiny vampires okay i just didn't know because if preferentially they took one part of the blood then you would see a buildup or an increased need for something else so uh you know right that's what so I'm wondering. that is actually you, you know you'll see with some of these you'll see malnutrition particularly in children it's, it's one of the major concerns with heavy worm infections when we talk about the soil transmitted helmets, because despite the adequate provision of nutrition to the child in some instances, they're not becoming fully nourished because of this, this stealing of blood uh, and stealing of components from, you know, from, from the child. It also is a big concern with pregnant women because of, you know, the incre- increased needs and, and the the problems that anemia can cause in those groups of people. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So what do you think is going to be the future of diagnostics for you? Where do you uh, see where you're going to make inroads? So what we like to do is we're always thinking of ways to make things sort of less expensive and more accessible. Um, And in particular, we think a lot about, so because of those mass drug administration programs that I was talking about, there have been large gains in um, within the community in, in terms of fighting a lot of these pathogens, where in certain instances, you know, infection levels have really, really declined 
And particularly with lymphatic filariasis, there are a number of countries where it has now been eliminated as a public health concern. And there's you know, growing efforts to, 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 in, to, to basically increase the number of countries where this has occurred, where, where it can be eliminated as a public health concern. And so one of the things that we think about is what's going to happen to ensure that once you reach these very low levels of infection, that we don't start to see bounce back over time, right? Because we don't want to put all this money and all these resources into fighting a disease in a location, really knock it down to low, low, low levels, and then sort of turn our backs and walk away and say, okay, job done. So there has to be some means for monitoring for, you know, infection recrudescence or infection bounce back following the, the completion of these interventions, these, these attempts to, to eliminate the, the pathogen. And so we put a lot of thought into what sort of ways can these technologies be adapted so that they can be done at low cost or in really high throughput ways, meaning, you know, lots of bang for your buck in terms of big samples that can kind of be used um, as almost red flag detection for the presence of, of reoccurring infection or infection bounce back. So we like to channel our, our efforts in that way. One of the things that we've done recently over the past few years that's uh, one of our sort of novel approaches is in thinking about the filarial pathogens again, we've started looking, instead of looking at the mosquitoes, so one of the things that we commonly do and has been done for years and years and years is testing mosquitoes for the presence of these pathogens, right? Because we know that if it's being spread to new people, it has to be spread through the mosquitoes. So if you can capture mosquitoes and look for the presence of the worm, you know whether it's in, in the population and, and potentially being spread to new, to new people. Um, the problem with testing mosquitoes is that as your levels of infection in a community decrease, you need to test lots and lots and lots of mosquitoes to find you know, the one or the two or the handful that have the pathogen in them. And because mosquitoes are, you know, relatively speaking, big organisms compared to the pathogens that we're working with, you're limited to how many mosquitoes you can test at once as a single you know, pool of mosquitoes for a test if you don't wanna lose your sensitivity and miss an infection. And so we've developed a way, what we're working on is developing a method where we can really scale up our testing efforts in these post-intervention settings by instead of testing the mosquitoes themselves, testing the excreta that's produced by mosquitoes. And so really what we're doing, much like we do with soil transmitted helminths in humans when we're looking for a disease, where we look at the, the feces produced by an individual for the presence of eggs that are being released. We now look at mosquitoes and we look at the feces produced by mosquitoes or the excreta produced by mosquitoes for the presence of pathogen material that would indicate that the mosquito had a pathogen in it. And the benefit of this is that the biological mass of the sample is greatly, greatly reduced. So when we test mosquitoes, we're limited to testing of about 25 mosquitoes in a pool, any more than that, and a light infection will be missed because there's just, it's a needle in a haystack situation where that one pathogen is just, we can't find it with our tests because there's so much basically contaminating mosquito material in the sample. But if we look at mosquito excreta, 
we're talking about a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of biological material. And so if we can pool that from a large number of mosquitoes, we can test potentially hundreds. Um, you know, we've done up to 500 mosquitoes that we've indirectly sampled in a single pool by using their excreta rather than the mosquito carcasses themselves. I don't know if this is like crazy way out. I, I don't know. I, I guess I just heard it around years ago that um, there was some kind of problem with it, where the treatment was to um, take blood out of someone's body and run it through some kind of filter and put it back in. You know, I guess like you do dialysis. Mm -hmm. um, for these bloodborne diseases or these diseases that, you know, tend to put out, like you said, the progeny into the blood. Is there anyone even talking about therapies like that? I know in a third world country, it probably would be too expensive, but instead of giving medications and drugs and all that, is there a way to, you know, take someone's blood, circulate it outside their body, filter it in some way, and then put it back in? And might that be a, uh, a potential treatment? So that's a really interesting idea. Um, in terms of feasibility of doing that, it would, it would absolutely be feasible to filter the blood for these pathogens. I think the problem would be that that wouldn't necessarily um, produce much of a, a therapeutic gain within the individual. Because if you're simply filtering the babies from the blood, the next day that adult female is going to produce you know, thousands more babies that are gonna be filtered directly or sent right back into the bloodstream. And in addition to that, the really the cause of the pathology in most of these diseases, the filarial diseases, is the presence of the adults. So they're occluding the lymph or they're blocking, you know, filling the chambers of the heart or whatever the case might be. The babies themselves are microscopic and are circulating, and maybe they're causing small problems within, you know, some of the, the smaller blood vessels, but the, the large-scale pathology that results from these diseases um, is sort of independent of the baby circulate. So I think from the standpoint of, you know, that would be an interesting way to prevent the presence of the babies within the blood from a transmission standpoint. But again, I think that would be a difficult thing to do on scale, you know, where you could have an effect similar to what can be accomplished with the therapeutics. And the thing about the therapeutic sounds, you know, maybe in some ways not like a great idea and a little bit contrary to what we typically think of when thinking about drug treatments and therapeutics. But these are very well tolerated drugs with very minimal side effects. And you can almost think of it, you know, it's almost an indirect way of vaccinating, right? Because by preventing transmission, you're preventing the, the population at a whole from becoming re-exposed and infected. And so, you know, you're trying to prevent that reinfection or prevent that infection using these well-tolerated drugs that only have to be taken, you know, maybe once or twice a year. And typically what'll happen is this'll be done in sort of large community programs. Oftentimes it's through schools where children will just be given their, you know, their, their treatment a couple of times annually as part of their, their day at school, basically. Um, and it, it has led to incredible gains within the community. There can be, on very rare occasion, uh, detrimental effects. So they call them, you know, serious adverse events. But those are almost exclusively only occurring in situations where people have other infections as well, or you know, certain underlying conditions. And there are there are screening mechanisms in place to attempt to minimize that from happening. And they are a very infrequent occurrence relative to the number of 
I think the good that is done through these treatments, you know, very much outweighs the risk that the the small amount of risk that does exist. So if you filtered out the babies, like I said in the previous example, I guess the um, you know the parents, the mother or the father, we don't even know which, and this is a whole area needs to be studied, are monitoring for the uh, perhaps the number and the presence of babies in the uh, blood, so they know to stop producing more, or do they just produce some ad infinitum until you know they just keep reproducing, reproducing like mad. Or is there a feedback mechanism? Does anyone know? Um, You know, I don't think that has particularly been studied. The females, the adult females, once they're sexually mature and are reproducing, will produce thousands of babies a day. And that's pretty much a consistent production, a level of production. The, the, The number within the human, so the number that are actually circulating, can vary drastically. But a lot of that has to do with host response as well. So the ability of the host organism to clear the babies from the blood, you know, of its own doing, basically. So the immune response can vary considerably between between hosts, again, for reasons that are largely still unknown. But the females are basically little, you know, little juvenile worm factories, and they'll just continue to produce them throughout their adult reproductive life. Okay. Well, very good. Nils. I hope I asked you some good questions and spurred some good thoughts. And uh, I appreciate being on the podcast. What's the best way for people to keep tabs on what you're doing? So if they want to find my work, I have a ResearchGate page that they can look at, or they can also um, search my name on Google Scholar, and they'll find uh, my work there as well. Okay, very good. Well, Nils, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.